0: Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jen Hendrich and I'm the middle school pastor here at Rolling Hills. For the past few weeks, we've been in a series called Jesus Life-Changing Conversations. The conversation that we will be diving into today is Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. Pastor Nick will be highlighting the significance of Jesus' words to this woman and how he is the savior of all people, including the lost, the broken, and the hurt. Now let's hear from Nick.
1: That was really awkward for me. <laughs> like, good morning. I'm glad, that, I'm glad that you guys are here today as we celebrate this Palm Sunday. And I'll just go ahead and say this is a little bit like your living room or your kitchen, and you feel like, oh, no, I didn't grab what I needed. There are communion elements up here at this front table. There are communion elements in a back table over to my left, and there are some upstairs in the balcony too. If you need to grab one of those this morning, because later on as a church we are going to be celebrating and taking those elements, elements together. Um, Those of you who who I know uh, well and who've known me and my story for a long time know that my wife Susan and I, we moved here just about 14 years ago and that we have three children. Only one of them was with us then. We moved here with a baby that had been born in Florida and so Lily Kate was uh, born in 2006 in Florida and during the course of that pregnancy, Susan and I learned Um, that we both carry, many of you know this, um, the same exact gene mutation for a disease called cystic fibrosis. And so our children have all been tested at birth. Lily-Kate was tested in Florida the week that she was born. The results came back, and it turns out that she is a, a gene carrier like Susan and I, but she does not have the disease. Uh, and so we move here, pregnant with another baby, and I'll never forget this conversation. We sit down with our pediatrician. He had already been taken care of, you know, baby number one, and here we are getting ready to bring home baby number two, and we tell him, oh yeah, by the way, we both carry the same exact gene mutation for a disease called cystic fibrosis, and knee-to-knee, eye-to-eye, the pediatrician looks at us and says, well, we will hope and pray that this little baby, this little girl, doesn't have it, but if she does, you are in a really great place just because of Vanderbilt and just because of the medical care that's available and the and, and leading cystic fibrosis clinic that's been there. We knew that if our kids had it, they would get great care. So five years later, um, Nor Blake was also just, well, right then found out she's only a, a non-displaying carrier-like way that we are. Fast forward five years later, we are pregnant with a little boy, so excited. Um, he's gonna come into the world, same conversation, same doctor, oh yeah. We, Let's pray that he doesn't have it. But if he does, you are in a really great place. So we uh, noticed, even after Simon was a really high birth rate, a little fat baby, like nine pounds, five ounces. Some of y'all are like, well, I weighed more than that at birth, so you're calling me fat. I did not call you fat, I promise. But fat baby's just so cute, nine pounds, five ounces. He comes out, but he's symptomatic. So even before we had the results of the blood tests that they did in the hospital, we, we already had this kind of prayer request going on in our minds, and, and Vanderbilt gets the, the blood tests first. They're notified by the company, and so they're getting ready to call us in, never met any of those folks before. And our pediatrician intervenes and says, wait, let me give them the news. So he sits down with us in, in the doctor's office, knee-to-knee, eye-to-eye, face-to-face, and said, hey, i would like to let you know. And, and tears streaming down the... It's our pediatrician... Tear streaming tells us that Simon does, in fact, have cystic fibrosis, and we've walked that journey with him all along the way. And what's been really fantastic, I mean, one, the med- he was right, the medical care is really incredible. Simon, very healthy kid, you guys would never even know it. He's running around, everything has been really up and to the right and great for him during his entire journey with CF. But I will never forget that conversation because it was life-changing. And we're in the middle of a series that's all about the life-changing conversations that you have. And we're looking at the, the life-changing conversations that Jesus had with multiple people in his, his breathing life and ministry and journey leading up to this week when we celebrate his, his death and ultimately his resurrection. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want you to turn to, to John chapter 4. We'll be encountering a, a, a woman from Samaria and the conversation that Jesus had with her at the well. But this is what I want to say. Even in a conversation that's got really bad news, when you have it with the right person, it becomes good. And so sitting down with that pediatrician that many years ago, it's bad news. But man, we've got a good doctor. And he walked with us in the moment. There's some things that this word says to us about us, to us, and sometimes all around us. There's some, there's, some, there's some hard parts of this, but because they come from Jesus, they're all part of the good news that we need to hear. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much um, for the incredible conversations that we get to read, the privilege that it is to, to see them played out on paper, spelled out for us, transcript given, so that we can literally know the words of our Savior. And Father, as we encounter this conversation today, what we pray is that Christ's words to her would be Christ's words to us. And that we would discover more about who you are and who you've called and equipped us to be because of your Son. It's in his holy and perfect name that we pray. Amen. Before we dive into John chapter 4, I'm going to highlight for us Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus has literally given us the purpose and the reason why he came. We know that the Son of Man, Scripture tells us, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what we celebrate at Easter with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that his life was literally sacrificed for us. He speaks these words in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He says, for the Son of Man, and we're all confused sometimes because we're like, well, Son of Man, that's a nod to the fact that, well, Jesus was fully God. And fully human. No, that's a reference to the book of Daniel, which explains to us one like a son of man. This is a picture of him being the Christ, the Messiah, the, He's saying, the Son of Man, the Messiah came to seek and to save the lost. And that, that word lost in that passage of Scripture is the Greek word apalumi, and it literally means destroyed. That's bad news. But the good news is, is that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was destroyed and so we land in John chapter 4 and we see a picture of what that is It says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And you know that John, as he gained disciples and as he baptized people and as he multiplied followers, he was causing some rabble in the Roman government. He was causing some difficulty for the Pharisees and those were were in the religious ruling class. He was basically on their FBI watch list going, what's this guy doing? And now all of a sudden, Jesus is coming and gaining even more ground than John. And so we're going to have to turn our attention to him. And Jesus learned that the Pharisees had discovered whoa this guy he's causing even more of a stir than John was he's gaining ground first question right out of the gate it's a question we ought to ask ourselves every day in every single situation in every single conversation every single circumstance is Jesus gaining or losing ground in our lives is the word of God on the increase in who we are and how we make decisions and how we enter into relationships and how we interact in the world with this word? Is the word of God always on the rise or it is on the decline? Like is Jesus gaining ground? Is he gaining influence? Is he gaining a greater reputation? Is he gaining worship? Is he gaining more increased authority in your life? Is, it, is Jesus gaining ground inside of you? Or is he losing ground compared to all the other things in the world? That word, gaining, is literally the word making. He was gaining disciples. It means to produce or to to shoot forth. Side note: We can celebrate today the way that God's word is gaining ground and moving forward all over the world. I've been reading this book by an author. She's British, and so when I read it, I can kind of hear her in my head saying, like the lady on the Great British. Like oh, let me tell you, that is why. Like she's saying to us that here's this. It's estimated by 2030 that there will be more Christians in China than there are in the United States, a place where it's illegal. It's estimated that by 2050, likely in very many of our lifetimes, that China, a place where it's illegal, will be a majority Christian country. The word of God is gaining ground. The fastest growing church, the fastest growing group of believers in the world is in Iran today. Places where it's difficult to know and follow Jesus, he is gaining significant ground. And so we celebrate that. I can celebrate the way that God is gaining ground all over the world, but is he, is he gaining ground right here? In our neighborhood in this community in our city is gaining ground in your heart he continues these words so Jesus is gaining and baptizing more disciples than John although in fact we got to make this reference that it was not actually Jesus who was doing the baptizing but his disciples so in verse 3 he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee now he had to go through Samaria Now, that's kind of a weird sense. Like, he had to go through Samaria because he popped it in Google Maps or MapQuest, and it says, hey, this is the shortest distance between two points. This is the way that you need to go. Jews would avoid going through Samaria at all costs. Even if it took them around the world to get to their final destination, they would not travel through Samaria. But this passage of Scripture says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. I don't think it was because it was the shortest distance between two points. I think it was because it was the mission that God had assigned them in life. He needed to pass through this place. So, he... Came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well, turn the page, was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, John does a great job in this gospel. If we read from the very beginning, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Like, we, he's a great job telling us that Jesus is wholly divine, fully God. But he also does a really good job telling us that Jesus was also fully. Y'all, he was just tired. I guess a long journey. He was just sleepy and weary from like fully God and yet fully human. So he sat down by a well and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Parentheses, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now one of the things, one of the reasons why they wouldn't travel through Samaria is because if you got hungry, you weren't supposed to go and buy food that a Samaritan had touched because Jews considered them to be unclean. And yet, so his disciples are already kind of breaking some of the modern day customs and rules by going and being willing to buy food from them. And then Jesus speaks to this woman. So she responds, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? So here's Jesus. He's, he's flipped the game on her. He's not talking about a physical drink of water anymore. He's talking about a figurative drink of water that will never leave her thirsty again. And she's still in that literal moment thinking, well, where are you going to get this water? Because that well is real deep, and you don't even have anything that you're going to draw it with. And then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Is Jesus greater than to you? And fill in the blank. Is Jesus really greater than? Greater than everything we got right at the beginning of scripture the enemy comes into the garden and he whispers to Eve did God really say this is God's word really greater is is this scripture really truer is his place and his will in your life definitely better than anything else in the world can you honestly say that you believe inside your head and you live it out with your fingertips every single day that God is greater is he really better is the news that he has for you really good? The woman says to Jesus, "Hey, are you are you really greater than Jacob?" Subtext: I need something great in my life. I I need something good to hang on to. So I asked you today: It's in your notes. You can jot down little things as we go. Like, is 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 Jesus greater than status? Is is he? greater than the, the lines that we draw across society. She said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How is it? I mean, how can you even talk to me? Samaritans were hated by the Jews. You see, in, in, the, in the Old Testament history of, of Israel as a nation, there was the moment that came after Solomon where the kingdom was divided into a northern and a southern half because of their wickedness, and so because they were divided, they were more susceptible to invasion, and so uh, the Assyrian army invaded the northern kingdoms of Israel, and there's and what happened. You heard about the Babylonian invasion, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they all go in, and there's a fiery furnace, and there's this big statue that they're supposed to bow down and worship. Some really great stories that we tell children, no less, like the Babylonian invasion took the southern kingdom of Judah, but before that happened, there was an Assyrian invasion that took the northern tribes, and what happened they took some of the Jews and they deported them off to other places in Assyria to control them but they left some of them there in the community and then they took other neighboring peoples other non-Jewish nations and they relocated some of those people to be in Israel and over time what happened is those people intermarried they were like fell in love and they got married and they had kids with the Jews and so you have these people of mixed history mixed heritage mixed race and the Jews hated the Samaritans. And there was so much animosity, so much so that they wouldn't even travel through those communities, so much so that they wouldn't buy and sell goods with those people, and it was a pluralistic, syncretistic, systemic issue of racism that plagued God's people right back there. Generations later, you've got this hatred that erupted. It's the same centuries of systemic racism that Created the stratuses and the the striations and layers of people that we still argue about and sin against even today. It's the same systemic racism that gave us the Holocaust. It's the same systemic racism that gave us the Ku Klux Klan and Jim Crow laws and the disagreements and the distractions and the disadvantages that we have today. It's the same systemic racism that gave us apartheid. It's the same. Systemic racism that creates ethnic cleansing in Rwanda and China and other places around the world. It's social customs on so many levels that create division where one group of people doesn't like another group of people and uses power and sometimes even scripture to objectify. There's some statuses in this world that we just can't seem to get past. But God's greater than that. Jesus is bigger than those things what's the status that you've been clinging to or the status that you've been oppressed by Jesus is bigger than that he's also bigger than shame it's easier to write that one down in the blank than it is to say it out loud because everybody in here carries something carries something from your past something from your story even something from your present that you think makes you less than, you think reveals your weakness, and you think that the God of this universe can't possibly love you through. But Jesus is greater than that level of shame. Here's a woman, I mean this is the original hashtag me situation. You know in 2017 Alyssa Milano tweeted if anybody had been sexually abused or objectified then just go ahead and retweet this hashtag #metoo 24 hours later 4.7 million retweets and comments have been made that's not that's not isolated occurrences and so here's this woman coming to the well around noon all by herself instead of with uh, another group of women in the community coming to the well earlier that day together you want to know why she wasn't part of the community, not only was she concerned about being judged by the Jews, she was an outcast from her own people because of the shame that had built up over time in her life. If hashtags had been around then she would have been shouting out to the girl that was written down in John chapter 8 because a similar occurrence happened. Jesus is in the synagogue. He's gathered in the temple and he starts to teach and a crowd gathers around and the religious leaders and the Pharisees thought this is our moment. We can grab this girl that's been caught in sin and the sin of adultery. Hence also if she'd been caught in the sin of adultery she wasn't alone in that moment. Where's the guy in this situation? But they grab her and they bring her into Jesus and they throw her down in front of him and say, this is our moment to trap him. We trapped her, now we're going to get Jesus. So they say, okay, the old Mosaic law that we have, it tells us that we are commanded to stone such a woman. What do you say? Jesus gets down in the dust He begins to write some words with his finger. And he stands back up and he says to the group of people, hey, how about Whichever one of you, whichever one of you guys is without sin, you can throw the first rock. And one by one, likely starting with the oldest down to the youngest, they begin to let their rocks fall. Because you see, they weren't without sin, and they knew it. And in this moment where they were trying to trap Jesus, what he did instead was to free her and then to proclaim really good news It was a hard conversation jesus leans back down and says to the woman hey lady where are your accusers now she said and they're gone and he says neither do i condemn you go and sin no more they didn't think that god could be greater than her shame they didn't suppose that Jesus could be bigger than her problems, but he is. He's he's bigger and greater than yours and mine, too. What about loss? Oh, you've experienced significant loss. Yesterday, I had both the burden and the privilege of attending the visitation of a funeral that's happening later this afternoon for a fellow named Jeff Woodford, who's barely many years older than I am. He has a 14-year-old just like I do, and he has a 12-year-old similar to the age of my kids, and he passed away last week from COVID-19. After a battle in the hospital for more than 30 days on ventilators and ECMO and things I don't even know what they are, he lost that battle, and he leaves behind a, a wife and two young kids. And I remember encountering Misty, his wife, last week in the in the middle of the funeral planning, and then remarking to susan another friend of ours that her countenance and her, her her confidence even in the middle of her grief was still full of joy it was it was still really good jesus encounters another woman in scripture in luke chapter 7 he goes to this town of Nain. you can read about it in verses 11 through 17 of Luke chapter 7 and his disciples see this long crowd I got to tell you the line was long yesterday at Jeff Woodford's wake of people that wanted to bless the family there was a, a large crowd that had gathered behind this funeral procession and Jesus goes up to the body that's being carried it was the only son of this woman who was already a widow her husband was gone and now she's about to lose her only boy and he, he tells him to get up and, and and the corpse literally woke up and he began to talk and then jesus gives him back to his mother and it says in verse 16 they were all filled with awe and praise god and they said a great prophet is among us god has come to help his people do you know jesus came to help you with your loss with your grief with your story, with your struggle. And and I knew yesterday, encountering Misty and her kids and and the rest of the people that were there, that in the middle of this, God's gonna help them. In the middle of this, they recognize that Jesus is greater than their pain. He's also greater than our limits. He's, He's greater than the things that limit us, In in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is is teaching in one of the synagogues, and it's on the Sabbath. And he notices this woman, again, another woman in the story, who's literally bent over and has been crippled for 18 years. It's like a legal adult life. That's how long she's been walking this way. And Jesus sees her and looks over at her and says, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. He healed her. Jesus heals this woman, and this happens. When he said this, because it was the Sabbath, because there were rules, because there were limits, because there were fences all around the ways that rabbis and people were supposed to behave on certain holy days, some of the people, some of his opponents were angry and humiliated, and they judged him, but the people were delighted with the wonderful works that Jesus was doing because what he's showing, I'm bigger than your man-made limits. And I'm also bigger than your physical limits. He told that woman to stand up. And I think you and I experience those kind of limits. We live in those kind of boundaries of I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not educated enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not tall enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not wealthy enough, I'm not blessed enough. To be able to engage the world around me in a really confident, bold, Christ-honoring way Like I'm ultimately not enough. I face limits. Jesus is bigger than those. Are you really greater than Jacob? Because I need something greater. Are you really greater than my shame? Because I'm all by myself. Are you really greater than my status? Because I didn't even know that you would talk to me, let alone bless me. Are you really greater than my loss, my pain, my struggle, my limits? Jesus is greater than all of that. Because ultimately, Jesus is greater than society. He's greater than nations. He's greater than anything that we might put our hope and our trust in. Back to John chapter 4, the woman says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? And in verse 13, Jesus answers her and says, Everyone, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Those women that came to the well this morning that wouldn't let you walk over here with them, they're going to get thirsty again. The people that have it better than you in life, the people that have it easier than you in life, the people that seem to have no problems and struggles in life, you know, you see them all the time. They have statuses on Facebook, and they think that life is perfect. Seems that way. They're going to get thirsty again. They're going to be drinking from a well that's going to run dry. Everyone who drinks this kind of water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them like a spring of water welling up into eternal life. He's referencing the book of Jeremiah that talks about a spring of water, a a, a living water. He's referencing the book of Ezekiel that talks about Jerusalem flowing with a, a river that leads to eternal life. Jesus is greater than anything else that we might put our hope in, anything else that we might put our trust in, anything that we might leave our confidence in, because none of that holds a candle to the fact that he is greater. All of that will leave us empty. Jesus gives us something different. So what do we do when we discover that Jesus is greater? When when, when you really believe that Jesus is greater, when you live your life knowing that he's greater, you worship? When, When we discover that Jesus is greater, we worship. This woman, Jesus goes on to tell her a little bit about herself. He knows that she doesn't really have a husband, that she's been married five times, and the guy that she's with right now is not her husband, and that's why none of these people hang out with her. He reveals to her every single detail of her life, and she says to him in verse 19, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's like, okay, I can see that you're a prophet. I can see that you know some stuff, so riddle me this, Batman. Tell me what's real going on, because all of my people, because we only believe in the Pentateuch, the Samaritans only looked at the first five books of the Bible math, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You'll see how I almost did the New Testament. It's the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. They only read those five books, a little shorter, but, but the Jews looked at the whole Old Testament canon, like Genesis all the way to Malachi, all that history, all those prophets. And so to them, they were supposed to worship in Jerusalem because that's where David claimed as the holy city. And that's where Solomon built that beautiful temple. And that's the one that was destroyed. And that's the one that the prophets came back to rebuild in there and say, this is a really big, important place where we're supposed to worship. But my people up in the northern kingdom, the ones y'all don't like in Samaria, we're the ones who say that you're supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim because it overlooks the city of where Abraham, the book of Genesis, set up the very first altar and worshiped God. So riddle me this, where are we supposed to worship? And Jesus says, neither. Y'all, the mountain doesn't matter, but the mode does. A time is coming, Jesus said, when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship the one what we do know. Salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming, listen, and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers that the Father seeks. True worship is in spirit and in truth. It's in the figurative, the stuff that we can't see, the stuff that we can only feel, the stuff that we can only recognize by the testimony and others. But it's also in the literal, the stuff that we can read, the stuff that we know to be true. We worship God in both. There's this whole demographic right now that's all about the the, the coolness or or, or the... I don't know, the, the trend of being able to deconstruct one's faith. I talked about this with Jason Hale this week. He's a pastor at our Nolansville campus. And we were going back and forth on the idea that there's so many people out there that are in this phase of life where they're deconstructing their faith. You can't deconstruct faith. If faith can be deconstructed, it's not faith. You can deconstruct your religion all you want to. You can deconstruct your denomination all you want to, and when we deconstruct our religion, and when we deconstruct our denomination, and when we look back at all of that history, and all of that tradition, and all of that story, we're going to find some hypocrisy. We're going to find some problems. We're going to find some difficult junk to deal with, but we're also going to find some treasures. We're also going to find some truths. We're also going to find some moments that we need to hang on to, and possibly even bring back you can't deconstruct your faith if you can deconstruct your faith it's not real faith but what you can do is deconstruct that story and figure out what it is that God wants you to do today to better be the child that he called you to be deconstructing your religion is like going in your grandma's attic there's a lot of stuff some of it's junk and it needs to be thrown away but some of it's an heirloom and you're going to want to keep that Deconstruct religion all you want, but your faith stays intact because our faith is in Jesus. We worship in spirit, and we also worship in the truth of what this word says. And when we worship, we share. We we, we share it with others. Ultimately, leaving her water jar in verse 28, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, people that wouldn't even talk to her, people that didn't want to be around her, she says, She says, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? It's not an accident. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to resurrect what had been destroyed. It's not an accident that, that, that Jesus chose a broken, lost woman to reveal his true identity. This is the first recorded instance in Scripture where Jesus face-to-face looks at a person and says, i'm the messiah she says i I know that that the messiah the christ is coming and when he comes he's going to explain all this to us and jesus looks at her and says i the one that's speaking to you i am he it's not an accident that he chose a broken lost woman to reveal himself he gave her hope and he made her found it's also not an accident that because of her testimony Jesus gained even more ground. It says in verse 39 that many of the Samaritans, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. It's the word martyrio, and it literally means to bear witness to what you've seen, what your story is. And in the Old Testament, they would not hear testimony from a woman. And yet today, she gets to be a herald in this moment of God loving them enough to send a Savior who would recognize even them. The story that you have, the testimony that you offer of God being greater than your pain, greater than your struggle, greater than your situation, greater than your status, greater than any sort of limits that the world has put on you, the the world can hear that testimony and know that he is Jesus. We get to hear this morning um, from a dear friend of ours. Her her name is Rosanna Williams. We've known her all 14 years that we've been at Rolling Hills. Um, And she has an incredible testimony of what God has done for her to prove himself greater.
2: Well, Rosanna, thanks so much for taking time to sit down with us and tell us just a little bit about your story, you know, your family and then kind of, but talk about the battle you've you've been in.
3: My husband and I have two boys one that is 14 and the other that is about to turn 12, who um, we've been attending Rolling Hills since, gosh, 2007? In the fall of 2018, I went in for routine mammogram and that was when I got a call back from the office saying that they had identified something. Long story short, Come to find out it was what's considered um, stage zero breast cancer, which is DCIS or ductal carcinoma in situ, which means that the cancer is still in the duct. So they would just have to do a lumpectomy. I would take some medication and pretty much that was it. They did take a lymph node and that verified that the cancer hadn't already started spreading. Fast forward to 18 months. And so, um, yeah, last August, right around my birthday, <laughs> they called me back and said, we've identified something which I couldn't believe. I thought, I've been taking all my medicine. I've been taking all the vitamins. And, um, but yeah. Uh, so then they were like, we need to have a biopsy. We need to get a biopsy. And um, it was a new thing. I, I, Cause I I thought that we were done with that chapter. And so uh, my girlfriend drove me to that appointment for the biopsy. And I remember being in her truck and praying that um, if this was God's story for me, then he would help me through it. I chose to trust him. And so fast forward, uh, the nurse was calling me, telling me that it had either it had come back, they weren't sure, but it had now gotten out of the duct. So now it was considered aggressive. It was stage one. I never, I mean, aside from the thinning of the hair and my scalp killed me, but other than that, it was really, I, I never was sick as far as nauseous. I never had any, um, metallic taste. There's so many things that come with chemo and I I never had one of them really. And so I just, I was so grateful that God just protected me through that. And um, you know, the the biggest message through all of it was, we are, this is not our home. Um, We are passing through. This body is temporary. It's just, I tell, so I work with the ninth grade girls and I tell them all the time, I'm like, this is just an earth suit. We just need it for this place. It is wasting away the minute we get it. So don't get your head wrapped around this because this is temporary. And so, but even as an adult, as a believer, who's, you know, spent a lot of time in God's word, it was a struggle for me thinking, I'm going to lose my hair. Mm -hmm. Like I had great hair. (laughs) I had great, long, thick hair and to have to, you know, but I remember a time in the journey that, It was like the Lord was saying, are you gonna give that to me too? Because I want it all. And yeah, I remember praying and just like it all out there that if you want my hair, it's yours. Whatever you want from this, it's yours. And so, so yeah, this is temporary. We're just going through.
2: God's been with you and he is still with you, you know. Talk about this. Just what encouragement would you give to us? I mean, you're a wife, you're a mom, you know, you've got two awesome boys and uh, you serve so faithfully at church. You've been here forever and and to your church family, what encouragement would you give us about trusting Christ in the joys and even in the struggles?
3: We were never meant to carry the hardest burdens. Um, We may think that we can't do it and we may be in the season of, I don't think I can make it through another day. And I don't, I, I just don't think I can and we were never meant to. The truth is we were meant to surrender that to Christ. That's why he came to say, you can't, To remind you, You can't, but I can. No matter what circumstances come in our lives, good, bad, um, the well will continue to overflow. The Lord continues to be present and alive and uh, performing miracles in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so it's about really just being rooted um, in a daily walk with Christ and, and integrating spiritual disciplines every day.
2: Rosanna, you're a miracle, you know? I mean, you really are, and God's hand is on you. And I, I'm just so thankful. I mean, cancer survivor, um, but a woman of God. And that you now tell your story and pour into ninth grade girls and pour into everybody. And everybody who knows you just sees the joy of Christ in you. And so thank you, thank you for who you are and thank you for what God's doing in your life. And we love you, and we just celebrate you today.
1: And Many of the Samaritans in the town believed um, because of the testimony of that woman. And I'm convinced that there will be many people around us who believe because of a testimony like Rosanna's. Because she sums it up. Five minutes of talking, and she basically just says, God's bigger than my illness. I do believe that there will be people in and around us who begin to trust in the name of Jesus because of the testimony of Misty Woodford and her kids. 14-year-old Lexi Kate and 12-year-old Sam who don't have a dad to come home to anymore because what they're gonna be able to express through their testimony is that God is greater than loss. God's greater. In the middle of it, whether it's your, your sin or your shame or your limits, or your story, or your struggle, or your age, or your infirmity, whatever it is, whatever you walk with, and whatever you're freed from, God's bigger than that, and it's a testimony that when you share it, other people will come to faith because of it. Some of y'all got some hard news, and sometimes the hard news coming from the right person can be the best news, You can say to somebody else that hey in spite of it god's bigger this morning we are invited to come to a table Um, it's a table to commemorate and to celebrate the fact that we're moving into holy week in the life of our faith Um, this is the moment Four days prior to Passover, when Jesus and his disciples, they, they make their way into the city because they're going to worship. They're going to worship in the way that they had done their entire lives. They had always celebrated Passover. They had always marked the season of life when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and yet this time something was different. Jesus rides in on a donkey, and the scholars tell us today that he likely didn't go through the main city gate as he made his way into the temple, and he likely didn't go through the king's gate, although that would have been such a cool reminder of the fact that Jesus Christ is king, and the people are shouting Hosanna as he made his way through. Some scholars are saying that he no diverted off course and went through what is known as the sheep's gate. It's where hundreds, maybe even thousands of sheep were brought in from a neighboring hillside in Bethlehem, no mind you, into the gate because they were going to be slaughtered during that one special festival to commemorate freedom from slavery in Egypt. It's not an accident that Jesus would have gone through that gate. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God comes. So Jesus... On the night that he celebrated that Passover feast with his disciples, he took the same unleavened bread, bread that said, hey, we got to get out of town tonight, folks. We don't have time for the bread to rise. We're going to eat with our shoes on because when God says go, we're going to leave and we're going to be freed. He took that same bread, bread that they were accustomed to, and he gave them something new. He said, this is the bread of a new covenant. This is my body that's going to be broken for you. So, you have your convenient little communion elements, and you're going to peel back the top layer and reveal that tiny little wafer. And what this represents to us today is the fact that God's greater. He's greater. And that his love is bigger. Love so much that he would send his one and only son to die in your place and mine so that our sin would no longer separate us from God, but would invite us to the table with God. We can be his. Because he died. And so we take this, and our table says, remember, so conveniently. And Jesus said, as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. Paul said that as long as we do this, we proclaim the goodness of the Lord's death until he comes. That's rough news. But it's coming from a very good God. And so it means the world to us. As we take it, we remember that Christ died in our place. On the same night, he took the cup, the wine, what they were always accustomed to using as a celebration, and told him that this night it was something new, that it was the blood of the new covenant, because it would no longer be representative of the blood of a lamb on a doorpost, sending the death angel in another direction and allowing God's people to be free. It would be the blood of, uh, once and for all, sacrifice, the Messiah. Jesus looked at that girl and says, the one speaking to you, I am He. He told her who He was and He told her why He came and He said, It's for you too. All those people over there, they think it's only for them. It's for you too. Maybe you've been that person. You thought Jesus was for somebody else. He's for you too. So on the night that He was arrested and tried, takes the blood and says hey it's blood of a new covenant it's blood that was shed for you Paul said as often as we do this we proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes really rough news but from a really good God who is greater Jesus we tell you today that you're greater And what we ask is that you would allow us to share a testimony that helps other people believe in you because you're bigger than our problems. You're bigger than our sin. You're bigger than our illness. You're bigger than our limits. You're bigger than anything in this society that we might put our hope or faith or trust in. You're bigger. You're bigger and you're greater. And we tell you today, not just symbolically, but literally, thank you for loving us enough to die for us making it possible for us to be called children of God. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, Rolling Hills Women as You Go podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening, ways you can connect. We are thankful for you.